Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, Higher Side Chatters, doing the thing from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and it seems like we're in a time where everything is backwards. And it seems to me the culture shapers, academic authorities, and regulatory agencies have worked very hard to get it this way. Undue pressure is put on small organic farmers while glyphosate-soaked foods fill our grocery stores. The FDA demands a heavy-handed warning for natural herbs and vitamin supplements that have proven track records that go back decades while they allow some pretty harsh side effects and damage to accompany Big Pharma's approved products. The education system has ushered in software-based learning on corporate marketing devices when many studies show that internet technologies, social media, and iPad devices are not kind to developing minds. And our politicians are using the signs of changing climate to exert more power over the people rather than focusing on the corporate polluters and the problematic products they produce in mass. And it all speaks to the arrogance of modern industrialized society that this is the most advanced we've ever been, the ancient past has little to no value, and that if it makes dollars, then it doesn't have to make sense. Well, today we're welcoming back Randall Carlson, who has done a lot to help me see the wisdom and the depth of ancient cultures, as well as the value of sacred geometry and systems of measurement that go back further than we even know. And his work on catastrophism and the awareness of cycles of time puts the past, present, and future in a much-needed new context. His areas of interest seem to know no bounds, and you can find many great presentations and topic discussions on his website, randallcarlson.com, home to his Cosmographia podcast and a robust archive of videos now through HowTube. He's putting together some amazing tours as well, taking people out to see the changes left by the last major cataclysm and the remnants of cultures long lost to history. A jack of many trades, and I'm psyched to get into it. The great builder, teacher, and ever-friendly Freemason, the granddaddy of the Younger Dryas, Randall Carlson. Welcome back to the higher side. Well, thanks for having me back, Greg. I'm so flabbergasted by that introduction i'm having to kind of recover a little bit here (laughs) then i've done my job recover my composure nice yes and it's been too long man i am jealous of all the fun you're having with the gramerica guys and the serpent bros those tours and retreats do look like a really good time i'm hoping to get out on one and now that i see how easy it is for everything to just kind of stop unexpectedly i can't 
take opportunities for granted anymore, you know? Got to get out there. Get out there while you got the chance. Get while the getting's good. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah. Well, we've been missing you, Greg. Ah, too kind. I appreciate that. Yeah. Like people ask you, where is that guy? I don't know, man. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, man. But there are so many great things we could talk about. So many topics covered in your Cosmographia podcast that I'd love to have you elaborate on. But I think one of the most fascinating things I've heard you talk about recently would be your future vision of revitalizing principles of sacred geometry and building out infrastructure using the archaic principles because there seemed to be so much intelligence to building in the past that is maybe missing from our modern ways of doing things. And I hope we could start there and talk about these ancient building principles, how we find that they were used all over the globe and how you plan to bring them forward. But when it comes to establishing some sort of new build, maybe you could give us a bit of an overview of the process as it was, which I believe would often start with the setting of the gnomon pole. Is that right? That's right. But the gnomon pole actually was not the very first act. The first act was mapping out the subtle, if you want to call it the subtle energy of the landscape. And it was believed, and I think on empirical basis, that there are patterns of energy associated with the lay of the land, the topography, the type of rock and minerals present, the hydrosphere and what's going on there in terms of groundwater as well as surface water. All of these things are part of the whole matrix of material and energy that comes together to make a landscape. So all of this was taken into account. If you've ever heard of the term geomancy, Greg? Right, yes. Geomancy. Yeah, well, that's kind of, if you were going to look for a single term that kind of encompassed all of these ideas of mapping, essentially what you could think of as the sacred geography, the idea that there is a connect, you know, the Chinese were very strong onto these ideas, that there is a pattern, a hidden pattern in the landscape, and that there were ways to work with that pattern of energy that was associated with the hills, with the valleys, with the rivers, like I said, with the groundwater, with all of these factors coming together. And one of the ways that I would think a remnant of that ancient science, we can get more into the specifics of it, though, has kind of come down to us in the form of the water witching, as it's been called, or dousing, you know, where someone who has the sensitivity, mostly these days, it's through an enhancement of one's, I'll call it your subtle nervous system, for lack of a better term, using some type of instrument to enhance the response of your subtle nervous system to the changing flux of energy and patterns around you. But by connecting your consciousness with your subtle nervous system and extending that by means of instrumentation, which usually traditionally was typically a branch of a forked branch of, say, a hickory tree. Although it has extended and there's all kinds of different ways you can approach it now and technologies from, you know, using pendulums to using swing rods. My first exposure to that was using swing rods many years ago when I was about to build a boat barn out here north of Atlanta along the Chattahoochee River. And the way I was going to build it was that somewhere the owner had gotten 15 telephone poles. And I don't know, maybe they were recycled telephone poles. That's apparently what they were. But the plan was 
to build a pole barn by putting three rows of these telephone poles in the ground, consisting of five in each row into a rectangular pattern. And then once those 15 vertical telephone poles were in the ground, then I would come in there and tie them together with purlins and frame up walls, frame up a roof, then enclose it, put doors on both ends. And the guy had several boats. So when it was finished, it had doors on both ends that you could open. He could pull in with his truck, disconnect his boat and pull out the other end. But where this relates to the whole point I'm making here is that the way the poles were going to be sent, these are telephone poles. So it was just me and one helper would have been too much for us to try to dig the holes. And the two of us manually set whatever 30 foot long telephone poles. But back then, the telephone company, the local telephone company that was we used to call Ma Bell, had a deal where they would send out their auger truck and dig the hole and they had a boom and they could set the poles if you wanted to do that. So and I think they only charged $8 a pole. Now, this is 1974, I think, maybe 75. So things have gotten considerably more expensive. But in any case, right, right. I, I called the telephone company. I said, I've got 15 telephone poles that I want to have set. I need them drilled and set. And they sent the truck out and pulls up on the road. It's, you know, this is in a rural area. So there's a gravel road in front. There's a driveway leading into the property. And what I did was I cleared the area where the barn was going to be, and then I had driven stakes. So I laid out where all of the 15 poles were to be set, and I drove a wooden stake in each of those. So I had 15 stakes in the ground, each one marking the position where a telephone pole was going to be set. So the Ma Bell truck pulls up to the property, and the first guy that gets out, I can see that there were several guys in there, but the first guy that gets out, He's as tall, I would say not too elderly, maybe like 60-ish, gets out. He's tall, thin guy, maybe 6'5", six, 6'6", six six, as best as I can remember, wearing overalls and a really old crumpled hat. And he gets out and he's carrying what looks like a violin case. Then the other two guys, they get out and I think one guy stays in the truck, the other guy gets out, he's standing by the truck. The guy in the overalls comes down, walking down. He could see, obviously, that I had a cleared area and that I had my 15 stakes driven in the ground. So he comes walking down there, and I don't remember what he says, maybe hello or whatever. But then he goes over and he opens up this thing that looks like a violin case, and he takes out two dousing rods. They were swing rods. This is the first time I had ever seen swing rods because I had heard of dousing and probably had seen pictures or something, but it was always an old guy with a four-tickery switch, right? So he comes out, and what they are, Greg, is just basically two automobile antennas of the old-fashioned type that were telescoping with the round little ball on the end. And what he did was he bent them at the outer piece of tubing there. He bent to 90 degrees, and he cut off the sleeve, the outer sleeve, so that it was six, seven inches in length. So he could hold that, and then the other piece of the antenna was free to swing back and forth. So he walks down and he's carrying these things. He's holding them in front of him. He's got his arms out in front of him at about, you know, maybe waist high or a little higher. He's got a rod in both hands and they're gently kind of waving back and forth, pivoting in, in their sleeves, right? And what he does is he then walks over with those rods, so swing rods, walks over each of the 15 stakes that I had in the ground. 
And as he walks over him, nothing much happens. He walks over him with his rods, and he calls up to the guys at the truck, clear, walks over the next one, clear, walks over the next one, clear. All 15 of them were clear. Okay, cool. I guess I was interpreting that to mean that, you know, there was no problem with them going ahead and digging a, a six or eight foot deep hole there, right? Right. Now, at this point, when he first got out, I was like, well, what is this? And, you know, on construction sites and all that, especially back in those days, you know, guys always used to play little pranks and jokes on each other and things like that to keep the morale up and keep the humor up because you have to. If you, you know, you're out working and you're a part of a team and it's 105 degrees out and you've been out there for nine hours and things aren't going right the way they should or whatever, or if it's 13 degrees below zero and everybody's freezing their tail off, you got to have a sense of humor to get you through. So I'm kind of grown up in that world. I'm a little bit used to that. So if the, for my first thought is, hey, what is this? These guys are like, it was a setup. Like, yeah, hey, they're messing with you. Yeah, they're messing with me. But the more I thought about it, rationally, it didn't make sense. You know, well, they're not going to bring this guy along and do this all just for my account for crying out loud. So by the time he gets done, I figured, okay, this is for real. And he's doing something like, again, like I said, I had seen pictures or maybe even on TV or something as a kid about water witching. And I realized, okay, he's doing something like that. Okay, so well, here's where it gets interesting. With those swing rods in his hand, he walks over to which would have actually been to the west, because where I was east of the driveway coming into the property. So he's walking to the west and walks over the driveway, and he gets about halfway over it. And it was really quite amazing to me, because all of this time, these little, if you could picture, I have to draw a mental picture here, You've got the wire coming out with the ball on the end, and it's gently oscillating back and forth, and he's holding these leads. Okay, so now he gets over the middle of the driveway, and all of a sudden, it's as if somebody grabbed the ends of these antenna and yanked them into an X and literally had them under stress, so they were, in effect, bending, like they were bending towards the earth. And it was very startling to me in a way to see that because it really did look like there was an invisible man standing at the end of it grabbed these things yanked them into an x well then he takes a couple of steps beyond and the two swing rods relax from their x and go back to gently oscillating back and forth so what he does is from that point he walks in a zigzag fashion and every time he crossed over we're Obviously, you figured out by now what he's done is he's found the water main coming mm -hmm. into the property that kind of crosses the driveway at an angle. So at that point, the owner had come out. And so this guy is zigzagging back and forth. And each time he crossed the water main, it was the same response from his swing rods. And at that point, the owner looks at it and confirms, yeah, that's where the water main comes in. Right? I didn't know exactly where it was, but I knew it came in from that direction. and. I was amazed at that, but then I'm standing there, and then he looks over at me <laughs> with a wry grin on his face and says, you want to try it? Hmm. So I'm feeling self-conscious. You know, I was pretty young, and 
feeling kind of self-conscious. But I said, hey, why not? I tried things that were far more, probably far, had far worse implications for my long-term well-being than this. So sure, sure, man, I'll give it a shot. I took them. And let me tell you, I walked across where that water main came in and it was like I got a shock. It was so startling to me because what happened was it really did feel like somebody grabbed the ends of these swing rods and literally like, you know, they're just, like I said, gently kind of oscillating back and forth in their tubes. And then all of a sudden, whammo, they go into a cross and I could literally feel like they were bending. Hmm. And I was able to trace that water main out to my total surprise. I will also say that later on, I experimented with it myself multiple times. Never have I been able to recreate that level of where it was so startling. I'm sure it had something to do with my state of consciousness. I have no doubt of that because really I had no expectation. Mm -hmm. The problem was, as I go out later, years later, and I'm trying it, I got this expectation in my mind that I think is kind of sort of obscures because it's such a subtle thing. And somehow it's through your own, perhaps maybe it's your autonomic nervous system. I don't really know to tell you the truth, but something amplifies because since I've learned now, these guys are able to, and ladies too, of course, I've done presentations to, for example, the Appalachian Society of Dowsers. So, oh, God, 96, I did a series of four or five lectures to the whole weekend with the Appalachian Society of Dowsers. There was probably 150 people from all over the place that had various levels of expertise at being able to detect subtle energies. And there was a lot of different methodologies being used. But in any case, all this comes back to the thing that I was saying. The idea is in a geomantic survey, you basically have to determine by some subtle means or some overt means, the pattern of energy in the landscape. So that's mm. the first step of the actual implementation of the sacred architectural structure that you're going to build. So that's the first overt act, is going out and producing that map. Now, of course, back in the old days, they had it down to a system, a very highly refined system. I'm still sorting out the specifics of it, but generally it boils down to, I think, that there would be a certain spot within any given tract of land where there is essentially a concentration of energy. Now, is this a geomagnetic force? Maybe. I think there's a connection between the two. But where there is a concentration, if you will, I would suggest the work of Paul Devereux in his work in Great Britain in the UK on what he calls the Dragon Project. Because what he did over there was he spent years mapping the energy currents associated with all of the old stone structures throughout the British Isles. And one of the things that he discovered, Greg, was that there seemed to be actually a geological link between many of these structures because they seemed to be clustering around fault lines. Now, fault lines are fractures in the earth. They're not a static, they're a dynamic fracture. 
you might have a simple fracture or crack within the crust or in the lithosphere, the rocky bedrock of the earth. A simple crack is going to be a fracture, right? Mm -hmm. A fault line, the two pieces, the two tectonic plates, or let's say the two bodies of rock are moving with respect to one another. Now, it's that movement that sets up friction between the various crystalline bodies that are forming the bedrock. Also, it provides a means for the groundwater to percolate through the subterranean realm, if you will. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that movement of water under pressure through the fault lines actually can be detected using instruments, modern instruments, and verified. And that's what Paul Devereaux's Dragon Project was about. And I think that that's probably or most likely a rediscovery of one parameter of this sacred system of old that interestingly seemed to be universally practiced. So we've talked now about the first step of the overt expression or action involved in creating this, I'll call it a, a sacred infrastructure, if you will. Okay, now back up. Before that, you've got basically a mythical and an archetypal meaning. You've got a concept, a meaning, a principle that's at the core of what's about to take three-dimensional form in the realm of space and time, etc. So what you're doing is you're, you're encoding this mythical and archetypal meaning via symbols. So in a sacred structure, whether it's a temple or a whole urban complex, and an urban complex could be laid out using the same principles as a single one-room structure, a meditation temple, or whatever the case may be. So you're looking for a symbol. Now, the symbol then connects it with number and measure because symbols have geometric dimensions to them. And what you're looking for is the philosophical or the mystical or spiritual, metaphysical meaning, whatever you want to call it, associated with the symbol. And there is unambiguously a correlation in the realm of geometry and geometric pattern, because in the traditions of sacred geometry, all geometry, geometric form and number has symbolic connotations. That's really how you differentiate it from normal Euclidean geometry that would be taught in schools or universities, is because the same principles underlie. I mean, whether it's Euclidean geometry or sacred geometry, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Mm -hmm. And that will be true at least until you get to relativistic levels of thinking. But in terms of building a temple, say, for example, we're not getting into that realm. We're in the human scale of things. So you've got the number and measure, which connects directly to the symbolism that's going to be incorporated into the site. So, I mean, you can go to a Gothic cathedral, you can go to a Mayan temple, you can go to an Egyptian temple. Okay, if you've got the, for example, the Temple of Dendera dedicated to Hathor, the Temple of Hathor. Okay, so right there is your clue. The god to whom it's dedicated, or goddess, then gives you a clue to the symbolic idea that's encoded into that structure, you see. So then you go into looking at the meaning and symbolism and the numbers, for example, the patterns associated with the goddess Hathor. You look at the myths of Hathor and 
what were her deeds? What were her traits? What kind of a goddess was she? You take all that into account, you see. So now what you're doing is you're linking symbol with geometry. And so based upon the number and measure that's going to be employed into the design, you develop the modulus of the plan. Now the modulus is the basic unit. It's the basic integral unit that is going to be used repetitively and reiteratively throughout the building of this structure. It's what lays out the initial alignments of the structure and the dimensions that are going to be used. And of course, the dimensions yield numbers, don't they? The proportions yield numbers that are ratios for using something very simple, a rectangle that would be, say, 68.6 feet on the long side and 39.6 feet on the short side. Okay, this happens to be the actual dimensions of St. Mary's Chapel that was part of the cathedral complex at Glastonbury. Okay, well, if you actually calculated the ratio, you'd discover it's virtually almost precisely the square root of three. Okay, so you've got a number there, and that square root of three leads you into the whole realm of geometry, but it leads you in particular into a set of geometric relationships that's governed by three, six, and nine. And from that, you now can derive triangles, hexagons, and nonagons, which are nine-sided polygons. And those would then become the forms, the geometric forms that are now serving as the template upon which the structure is going to be erected. So now the nomen pole comes in is that you're looking for the place where the energy of the earth and the energy of the heavens comes together. <laughs> and that's the fundamental idea. And whether it was tribesmen in Borneo, whether it was the ancient Egyptians or the Greeks or the Mayans or the ones that laid out the monumental earthworks of the Ohio and Mississippi valleys, whether it was those who laid out the structures in the San Juan Basin of New Mexico, whose hub was Chaco Canyon, whether it was, you know, the megalithic structures of England, whether it was the Vedic temples of Indochina, it doesn't matter. All of these structures, all of these examples of sacred architecture, they look very different. You're not going to have any trouble differentiating as a rule, between megalithic architecture of the United Kingdom with the building of a Gothic cathedral in France. Obviously, a Gothic cathedral doesn't look anything at all like a ring of standing stones. But here's the thing, Greg. Underlying all of these outer expressions is the same template. It's as if these builders of old, all around the world, through thousands of years of history, were undertaking these incredible projects, and they were all working from the same template. Now, the specificity of this template is to such a scale that it becomes hard to imagine that it was independently derived because it's something so fundamental and archetypal that everybody is going to hit upon the same template independently. Now, certainly, they are archetypal. They are fundamental to our consciousness. But I just believe there's something more than that, because when we get into the nuances of it, the specificity of it, it's on such a level that it becomes very difficult to explain it away as being a coincidence or just something that's ingrained in our consciousness. So we're all coming up 
all of these builders of the Gothic cathedrals are using the same, essentially the same procedure. The idea of encoding the symbol, the idea of using a modulus. The Mayans building in Central America were using a modulus. In other words, like let's say you go to Egypt and in the building of the pyramid, the modulus was clearly the royal cubit. The royal cubit can be found because there are integral expressions, integral manifestations of the royal cubit, say in the king's chamber. Think of it this way, Greg, if you had two buildings built side by side, but one was built using feet and inches, the imperial system, the other one is using the metric system, centimeters and meters, and you had a measuring tape that was in meters and you had one that was in feet and inches. It would not take you long to figure out which building was which, would it? Right. Because right. you would go with the meter tape and you would find, oh, yeah, okay, this is exactly five meters. This is three and a half meters. But when you measure it in inches, there's no correlation like that and vice versa. Yes. So it's the same kind of a thing in the sense that you backtrack and you can determine a modulus. And the modulus that was used, here's an interesting thing, and we don't have time to get really into it. You know, it's the kind of thing that I will be explaining in my podcast because it really does require visuals. But, for example, each of the cathedrals, the great cathedrals, there was about 80 of these great Gothic monuments that were built between 1130 and about 1300. Okay, so these monuments, each one uses a different modulus and slightly different. Now, modulus can be anywhere like the royal cubit was right about 1.72 feet, about 1.72 feet. So if you turn that into inches, that works out to be about 20.64 inches. So, for example, there's the stone base to the Great Pyramid. It's called the Sokol. And the Sokol is standing up off of the bedrock by 20.6 inches, basically, right? Now, if you go out and you measure it, you know, there's going to be slight variations. It'd be just the same way as if I went out and I measured, if I built a brand new house, for example, and then I come back and I and I measure it and everything, and I'm a really top-notch craftsman. And so everything is perfect, just like the blueprints say, right? Mm-hmm. Within, say, a 32nd of an inch, anybody who comes out and is going to measure it, they're going to be, oh, okay, yeah, this is really well put together. Now, 100 years, 200 years go by, and this building has been subject to wear and tear, and maybe there's been some little seismic movement or a lot of wind or a tree falls on it at some point, whatever the case may be. It's not quite exactly as it was in its pristine condition the day it was finished, right? Mm -hmm. But by assiduously measuring, you would be able to reconstruct what the dimensions most likely were if you knew the particular units of measurement they were using. Now, here's the thing. We use feet and inches in America. They're part of the imperial system that also includes miles, right? Now, what's interesting about this is that there appears that our imperial system that we're using in America today is thousands of years old. And in fact, it appears that it was actually being used to lay out the template for Stonehenge. And again, I would just throw that out there, but the argument is really made when you begin to look at the reconstruction of the ground plans and an analysis of all of the dimensions that were used. But getting back to the parameters of this, so we've got the symbol, the idea behind it, the mythical and archetype meaning. 
Then we've got the number and the measure, which gives us the modulus of the plan. Now what we need is orientation, because all of this stuff is not incorporated and brought into an infrastructure just randomly. So now we need the orientation. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we do is we put the pole in the ground at the sacred center, which is where the energies of earth and heaven come together. That's the idea. And you put this vertical pole there, and it's in a sense almost like a lightning rod in a way. It draws down the power of the heavens, draws up the power of the earth, and then the philosophical function of the temple or the sacred space is the fusion of these two sources of energy, the terrestrial and the celestial. In every example we see all over the world of the sacred space, the sacred architecture, you find that function, that idea is central to the whole functioning of the whole thing, hmm. this idea of the linking of heaven and earth. But now it goes from there, because once you put in the pole, you now have a center, and you have a geometric center. And the Greek term for that, where the position, the sighting of the nomen pole, is the omphalos, which is basically meaning the navel center, like the belly button. Mm -hmm. It's that point where the physical manifestation of the force, the idea, comes into the realm of space and time. So, you know, a fetus grows in the womb. Right, right. It's like an incubator. Yes, that's it. And so the idea is that the temple or the sacred project here is now going to grow in an organic sense from this omphalos, from this sacred center. And then it manifests by radiating outward from that center. So. You put the pole in the ground, and then you use, in the old days, it was a knotted rope. It was also using a chain. And the interesting thing about a chain is they literally would get down to the specific size of the links in the chain. For example, in the old megalithic system, each link in the chain was 0.79 inches. So it's a little less than an inch, a little bit more than three quarters of an inch. But what that meant was that in the actual number would have been 7.92. And so if you've got 100 of those, you know, you've got 7.92, you've got that times 100, and that gives you 792. That times 1,000 is 7,920. And so by means of controlling the size of the links, in the chain and counting the numbers, you could lay out specific lengths. So the first thing that was done, and usually on the end of the chain, there would be a ring, a larger ring. And if it's just a simple pole in the ground rather than something more substantial like an obelisk, but you would then take the ring and you could slide it over the pole. And then by counting the number of links in the chain, you could get a radius and then you draw a circle. And Typically, the gnomon pole would be pointed on the end, right? And it would have to be in a clearing, so you had a pretty clear view of the horizon. That was important, right? So now, let's say the sun rises in the east, and, you know, we'll use the northern hemisphere. For the southern hemisphere, everything would be reversed. But for the northern hemisphere, even in the southern, it's still the, the east. But the sun would rise in the east, right? Now, as everybody knows, when the sun is first rising in the east, shadows are very long, right? And as the sun rises, the shadows shrink in length. And let's say you're at 45 degrees north latitude. Well, at high noon, 
then the sun is going to be, depending on the time of year, the sun will be about halfway up in the sky and the shadow will be correspondingly long. But if you think about this, it'll make sense, right? Now, as the sun is rising in the east, it's doing two things. It's rising, okay, but it's also moving from east to west. So it's moving, apparently moving across the sky. At noon, solar noon would be when the sun is exactly due south. Now, that doesn't necessarily correlate with clock noon. But behind clock noon is solar noon. And solar noon is the point where the sun is standing due south. And at that point, the shadow of the gnomon pole is going to be pointing to the north, isn't it? Well, also at that moment, the shadow is going to be the shortest. Now, if you start and you have this circle, you've got to visualize this now. If you have this circle drawn around the gnomon pole and the sun is rising, and as it's rising, the shadow of the gnomon pole is doing two things. It's shortening in length. At the same time, it's swinging, almost like the hand of a clock. It's swinging around because when the sun is rising in the east, the shadow is pointing to the west, isn't it? Right. As the sun shifts over, moves toward the south, the shadow is following it. So it's not only moving on the ground like the hand of the clock, it's also getting shorter. And it keeps getting shorter until the sun is at high noon. And then as the sun gets into the west, the shadow swings around to the east, and as the sun gets lower in the sky, the shadow gets longer. Now, if you can picture this process, this is a smooth process, but what you need to do is capture two moments within that cycle. The moments are is when the point of the shadow intersects the circle you've drawn. So as soon as the shadow is shrinking in length, and picture now the shadow has a point on it, the shadow is shrinking in length, and at some point, at some moment, the point of the shadow will be dead on that circle that you've drawn. So you put a stake right there. You drive a stake in the ground at that moment, say at somewhere between 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. Now you do the same symmetrical operation as the sun is going down in the west. The shadow is now going to be swinging to the east, and it's going to be getting longer at the same time. Well, then it may be, you know, whatever, as late in the afternoon. The point of the shadow at a certain moment will touch that circle that you've drawn and you drive a second stake right there. Now you've got two stakes in the ground sitting on the circumference of this circle. You connect those by a line and that line is your east-west line. Now by a simple act of geometry using two chains or two knotted ropes, you set up a perpendicular to that line and it gives you a north-south line. And now you have the four quarters laid out within a circle on the ground. And that's the beginning of your template. Because now once you've got that, you can develop triangles, squares, pentagons, hexagons, nonagons, octagons, whatever you need, whatever polygons you need, begin with that particular fourfold, the quadrature of the circle. And that's the whole operation you've just performed. It's a couple more steps I left out, but you get the idea. All of this is done, of course, ritually. Uh -huh. You know, the shamans or the priests, whatever you want, they're all in attendance, and this process is taking place. And now you've got this template on the ground. And from that template, you begin to actually create the physical structure. So you've got the harmonic design, 
the form, the pattern, and the dynamic symmetry that are all now encompassed into this geometry. And it's oriented. See, here's the thing. Now, within that, you begin to do more subtle subdivisions. For example, you've got this circle now. You've got the four cardinal directions marked out. And now what you're going to do is you're going to begin tracking the sun or the moon or a particular star or star cluster. And again, that association is going to be usually related to the symbol, the archetypal meaning. Hmm. So if you have a temple that's dedicated to Apollo, the sun god, well, you're going to incorporate, you know, the main axial orientations of the structure is going to be determined by the sun, right? If it's Demeter, the moon lunar goddess, you will work in the cosmic lines of the moon. And the moon, of course, you know, has this interesting dance that it does over 18.6 years where it swings back and forth on the horizon, basically like the sun does. You know, if you were to stand, let's say, and look due east, at the morning of either spring or fall equinox, you would see the sun rising directly to the east, right? And then as summer progresses, you're facing the east, right? The sun is going to be rising to the right of it. It's going to be rising to the north of it. And then after fall equinox, it's going to be rising to the south of it. So the sun swings back and forth on the horizon in this annual dance that has two equinoxes, and two solstices, where the apparent motion of the sun along the horizon pauses for a few days and then reverses to start its journey back to the north again, or then pauses to start its journey back to the south. The moon has a similar movement along the horizon, but it's got a maximum and a minimum rising positions. Unlike the sun, which has a maximum and a minimum, and relative to our vantage point on the Earth, it's going to be the same position every year. The moon goes through an 18.6-year cycle. Mm -hmm. And every 18.6 years, you will have a maximum rising and a maximum setting of the moon. Well, interestingly, a lot of the temples dedicated to the moon incorporate alignments with that 18.6-year cycle. Now, that's not an easy thing to see. It means you had a cadre of astronomers who were monitoring this move and would have been doing it for generations. Right there in these temples, and in fact, earthworks up at the Newark Geometric Complex in Newark, Ohio, is a great example of this, where you find the cycles of the moon over this 18.6-year cycle encoded into the geometry and the ground plan. So if you know where to stand at the right times, you can look out like the Newark structure is basically elongated raised mounds. And it's a circle. It's in an octagon. It's not a true octagon. It's a flattened octagon. They're connected by a causeway. And then there are openings. There are breaches within the walls of the embankments that create these forms. So if you know where to stand at the auspicious time, you'll be able to see the entire complex suite of movements that the moon makes over 18.6 years. Because when it reaches its maximum, say, northernly rising, you would be able to see it rising right there in this break between the embankments. And then the maximum setting position will have a counterpart breach within the walls of the embankment 
and you'll be able to see the moon actually setting within that space, that aperture between the embankments. And then at Chimney Rock in southern Colorado, they utilized two natural outcroppings, huge pinnacles of rock. And then they set up an observatory on a ridge leading up to these two pinnacle rocks. And from this observatory that they built, which is basically, if you know what a Pueblo and Kiva looks like, it's a circle. It's a ringed masonry structure. And again, if you position yourself in the right place, you can see both the sun and the moon rising between these two pinnacle rocks. Now, it wasn't the same position because the most, say, northerly rise of the moon and the most northerly rise of the sun aren't exactly the same. So you would have to shift your position somewhat within the observatory structure to see the proper phenomena between. And in 2023, the moon is going to reach its maximum northerly rise. And what that means is that it's going to be seen to rise between these two pinnacle rocks. And so the, oh, who's in charge? Maybe it's probably the Park Service. I think Chimney Rock is a national monument. I think it's under the auspices of the federal government. Anyways, they're going to open it up in 2023 because this phenomena of seeing the moon rise between these two spectacular pinnacles of rock is going to be able to be seen over several months. And so they're going to actually allow people, then it, it won't happen again for 18.6 years. But when it happened before, I don't think there was anybody maybe but some archaeologists there who were figuring it out and realizing, wow, look how they set this thing up, you know. So now, 18.6 years later, they're going to actually open it to the public. But I think you may going to have to pre-reserve. I'm not sure. I have to look into that. <laughs> right on. Well, this is also interesting and it's fascinating just how specific it is and that this process is found at many different time depths and all over the world. But let me ask you about the value of doing it this way, because obviously we have structures all over the place today and we don't do it this way. And I mean, we still use the structures, they stay standing, but I guess there's something about the energy that's different. I've heard you say that when you build a structure this way and you use these geomancy principles and it properly reflects the heavens and you orient yourself to that, it does something to your consciousness. And I'm curious if you could elaborate on that, but I guess maybe there are possibly a range of reasons and values to why a person would do this. <laughs> uh, on the far out end, I wonder if it opens up gateways to the heavenly realms and things like this, because it seems to be very specific about orienting the earth and the heavens. And when you read a lot of things that talk about that, you also start to stumble into an overlap with talking about gateways or sure. communication portals in the ancient world. And that stuff is uh, pretty wild and interesting. Well, it certainly is, Greg. And I'm willing to go there um, <laughs> in terms of thinking. I think that we're faced with a situation where we have to, in effect, set aside all of our dogmas and what we think might be possible. Because, like you just said, and what I've been going through here is these parameters were so specific. And they were the same parameters to the extent that we can tell, that we can reconstruct, we can look at the mythology, we can look at the history, we can look at anything specific. For example, even the traditions of 
handing down the methodology from one generation to the next that have survived both in written forms and oral forms. We can go through this list, the symbol, the number and measurement, the orientation, the sighting, the sacred geometry. The final thing we didn't really talk about was the alchemy, which is the preparing and the processing of raw materials that go into these structures. Mm. And very briefly, I will just mention as an example, say the monumental earthwork architecture of the eastern woodlands of North America, for example. There are many effigies of animals. There are truncated pyramids. There are tumuli. There are mound circles. Just like there is at Newark, Ohio, the circle that I mentioned is an embankment with a moat inside of it. It's almost a duplicate of Avebury. It's slightly smaller, but it's basically the same idea as you find in Avebury, where you have a circular embankment with a moat inside of it, which, of course, right there is the main clue that this isn't a martial or a defensive structure, because if it was, the moat would be on the outside, not the inside, right? <laughs> right. But here's the thing. You go over there and you analyze the earth embankments themselves, and they're not just heaped up mounds of earth. They're actually stratified, deliberately stratified. Silbury Hill in England, it's deliberately stratified using layers of material that have contrasting properties. Well, that sounds like an organ accumulator. Now, I had a guest talk about that and how organ seemed to work was uh, he would layer wool and organic materials and then metals and then vice versa. Yes. And that sounds similar. What they were doing, it's interesting that you brought that up, Greg, because it looks to me like that's exactly what they were doing. Hmm. And that, I think, kind of opens a little view through the keyhole into the cosmic science that was at work here. And it gets way more complicated than we're going to be able to talk about in this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for people who are interested in learning more, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of scattered information out there. And if I've done anything, over the last 40 or 50 years of research is bring as much of this material and information, some of it fairly well known, a lot of it really obscure, to try to bring it together in some systematic form. Now, it seems like the next step would be, how do we apply these principles in 2021? What do we do? And there's absolutely no reason that we can't incorporate or employ that system to potentially great advantage, if nothing else. One of the things that I think has really caused a deficiency in our downgrading of our consciousness in our modern world, for all of its benefits and comforts, one of the things that's happened is we've lost our connection with the cosmos. True. A hundred years ago, back through thousands of years of history, when the sun went down, it got dark, and there was no light pollution, and the night sky was right there. The planets, the sun, or the moon anyway, you know, star clusters, the movement of the heavens was apparent to our ancestors. And the universal response, again, was to try to somehow integrate not only the physical basis of our world that we create, but also our consciousness. I can testify that when you get out, and I've done this with numerous people who had very little understanding 
of astronomy or the cosmic cycles or who'd never really even seen the Milky Way galaxy or the zodiacal light or who couldn't find the Pleiades in the sky or the dog star. Once you go out and you begin to learn your way around the night sky, that is when something begins to emerge into your consciousness. And to me, it is that this whole edifice of which we are a part is not some expression of some random, meaningless process, but there's meaning at every level that we can discern it. And one of the things I think is that part of the healing, the psychic healing of a lot of people today is to reconnect them with that primordial substrate of cosmic nature, which we've lost touch with. And the whole point, I think, of these expressions in the past was to keep people linked with that so that they were aware on a day-to-day -day basis that there was meaning within our existence and that the world around us, the world, the lay of the land, the mountains, the rivers, the prairies, all of that, the hills, the valleys, the sky over our head, all of these things are living symbols and part of this great, unbelievable cosmic work that we are a part of. And we, to the extent that we lose that connection, that sense of wonder, of being part of something huge and something almost beyond our ability to comprehend, I think it is inducing a type of psychosis in us. Mm. Um, and I personally don't think that there's anything more important than coming up with strategies to reconnect with that level of cosmic nature that we're losing connection with. And if we're going to make that effort, well, we have a whole rich precedent that we can refer to. And it's this whole legacy of this system that's come down to us from many venues, from many lands, from many historical time periods, but it's all telling us the same thing, that there is a template and that template is still valid. And so I've had a vision forming in my head that the most logical thing that could outcome of this would be to begin to replicate the system. And I think in the same way that generations past through whatever, through some kind of prophetic insight, through some kind of intuitive sense, maybe through accessing and studying the traditions of the past and the great teachers of the past by immersing themselves in the sacred structures, in the architecture, they begin to get the sense that there was this system that has ebbed and flowed throughout our history and that they felt a calling in their way to try to manifest this system into the world to bring the heavens and the earth into harmony, to build a three-dimensional forms of city, of temple, even a house laid out with the sacred principles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah. I think because we must be getting close to the conclusion here. Yes. We did talk about earlier, Greg, about I'm actually working with some folks now that there's a growing interest in a prototypical project to see what would happen if we actually could begin to replicate some of the ancient sacred processes that you and I just talked about. Nice. And actually create the 21st century version that could perhaps serve as a prototype and, and getting a place where 
you know, I consider myself very lucky having grown up in rural Minnesota. Like my interest in, for example, astronomy really goes back to being a little kid standing outside at night in absolute awestruck wonder at the night sky. How many young people today are missing out on that kind of experience? So many. So many. So, you know, I've worked for years. For 15 years, I organized classes and field trips and things for kids that were being homeschooled. And I quickly learned how important it is to get kids out into nature, to get them out there, you know, to learn how to identify the stars in the heavens, to understand this incredible, miraculous machine of which we are a part, right? Not only but kids, but adults as well. Right, right. And so what I'm envisioning is a place that you could kind of think of as a reintegration facility where you could go there and you could reconnect with the forces of nature, the forces of the cosmos. You could create a place where you could hold retreats to get away from the urban madness. You could have conferences and seminars. The two things I've done to earn a living in this lifetime is to build and to teach. And it just seems to me a natural outcome or culmination of this particular incarnation of my life would be to build a school. Yeah. And I think the time is right because I just mentioned the idea and the positive response I get is people saying, yes, it really feels like it's time to reconnect with the larger reality of which we are a part, not only in terms of space and the cosmos, but also to reconnect with our own deep history. And what we're doing, I think, by resurrecting this template, this ancient template, and applying it to the modern world could have profound consequences for centuries to come. And so I am constantly now, I've been tracking various sites around North America that I think would be suitable seeding grounds, if you will. And I've located at this point six locations where I think would be really powerful places to set that gnomon pole. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. The closest to me, of course, is my backyard in, in the Southern Appalachians. There are some really powerful places here. And in fact, this weekend, I'm going up with my brother and a couple of friends to explore another tract of land that has become available. So one of the things I'm going to be doing with this small group of interested folks over the next few months is doing a lot of walking of land and actually trying to find a place where we could begin to implement these ideas. Beautiful. Yeah, that sounds really, really amazing. And I also told Darren that we would definitely mention the trip in September before we go. Can you tell us about that? And I guess any other excursions or events you do have on the calendar? It seems like there's more all the time. Well, yeah, looks like we're organizing another sacred geometry. I, in May, I did my first sacred geometry workshop that I've done in 10 years. Ah, cool. And it had such a positive response that we're going to do another one. We're looking at August. This would be like from a Friday night to a Sunday, and it will be to introduce people to the methodology, not just the philosophy, but the actual techniques. So it would be taking them a whole series of hands-on exercises coupled with the philosophy and the not only the how. So in the workshop we did last May, I gave people a list of all the things that they were to acquire or actually 
we put together a package for them. So everybody who paid the tuition for the weekend workshop got this package that included all the tools and implements that they would need. And so essentially I took custom-made drawing compasses that are available on my website for sale. And I developed those with my brother over a period of years teaching classes, not only to homeschool kids, but to adults. And so what I do is each person gets a compass and we start just like you might have done in a Pythagorean Lodge or the Platonic Academy 2,500 years ago. You start going through these series of geometric drawing exercises. And what's so powerful about this is because it's mind, it's eye, and it's hands all coordinated in this process of developing these really interesting patterns and shapes. And then when you begin to understand and realize the symbolical and philosophical and scientific or even metaphysical or mystical connotations of these forms and the patterns, it literally begins to awaken corresponding places in your consciousness because geometry is embedded in our consciousness and it's embedded in the natural world. So the idea here is by going through this series of exercises, you activate, you become aware of the geometry in the world around you and you activate the geometric substratum of your consciousness. That's the whole idea behind these workshops. So we did one in May. It's got a very positive response. So we're looking at another one for August. But all of this will be on the website. Anybody can find out about what's going on by going to randallcarlson.com. And we're also planning this tour in September. We did a tour in April. We're going to spend I guess, six days, a little bit less than a week, up in the great floodlands of the Pacific Northwest. And the idea there is I take a group of people out and I teach them to read the imprint of the great events that are preserved in the landscapes of the earth. And so what we have in terms of Eastern Washington, which is where we spent five days, was we have the imprint of the greatest floods ever documented in the history of the earth. And these floods are critical and important in understanding the unfolding of not only the natural world we inhabit, but the world of human civilization. Because as you know well, Greg, the world's mythology is replete with stories of these great world-destroying floods. Yes. So what I'm doing with these tours now is taking people and revealing to them this story that's been imprinted in the landscape for 12,000 years and only now is finally yielding up to interpretation because we've got the satellite imagery, we've got the digital relief mapping, we've got the LIDAR, we've got the drones that we can go up and we can look at this from a thousand feet up. We can traverse the terrain by auto now, whereas in the early part of the 20th century, when J. Harlan Bretz was mapping these incredible terrains, it had to be laboriously, arduously done by jalopy and on foot. And literally what took him 20 years, the maps that he drew that took 20 years, we can now see by looking at one satellite photograph. But so in these tours, what I do is we have briefings and preparations via Zoom 
typically is how we did it last time, leading up to the tour so I can brief everybody and inform and educate everybody about what it is we're going to be doing, what our objectives are, the scientific objectives, not only to understand what we're seeing so that when we actually get in the field, I don't have to re-explain that to people. Right, so right. we do our meetings leading up to the tour and I show video clips, I show slides, I show graphs and charts and so on to instruct them in this language because that's what it is. It's the story of these great events, Greg, is embedded. It's etched, engraved, embossed into the Earth's surface. And we've been walking on it, growing food on it, building cities on top of it, living <laughs> and dying generation after generation without understanding the nature of the world right under our feet. And now after 12,000 years, like I said, that world, the ancient world, the world that was drowned in these great floods is ready to yield up its secrets. And so that is the motive and purpose behind these particular field trips. So we have another one planned for September. It's going to be six days. We've added a day so that we can go at a somewhat more leisurely pace. At the same time, we can take in more sites. Mm. And that, of course, is all going to be on the website. And anything else that we're going to be doing that's coming up, whether it's a sacred geometry workshop or a tour, we're also planning for November a tour in the southeast. We're calling it the Cumberland Tour to show the imprints of these cosmic events that if you peel back the canopy of vegetation, it's right there. It's under our feet as well. And so through my Cosmographia podcast, what I've been trying to do is to show I'm focusing on North America now, but I'm showing trying to show how once you begin to recognize the fingerprints and the footprints, you realize that it's everywhere about us. It's in our backyards. It's every region of the continent. And then from there, we extend to the world itself. And like I said, it's the ultimate story of our time. And I think once this story is told, we're going to come to understand that this story of these great catastrophes that terminated the last world age is the veil separating our modern 10,000 years of history, which is really just a rebooting of history, right? It's what separates the modern round of history from the 200,000 or 300,000 years of deep history where the real story is still being preserved. So that's part of what the motive is for these tours. Amazing. That is a hell of a pitch. and I do hope to see you out there sometime soon. I do all my work from here at home, and then I just don't take advantage of all the doors it opens for follow-up opportunities. Sure. I was talking to Darren about exactly that, but this definitely seems like one I don't want to miss. Well, if you do come, I will make sure that everybody is told ahead of time to be nice to you. Okay, that's important. You know, that's it important. It is, I know. <laughs> and as I a like matter of fact, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't mind having somebody to carry my knapsack for me. All right, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll be the joint roller. I'll, I'll be the joint roller. <laughs> okay. The what? The joint roller. Hey, now there's an idea. Hey, Snoop Dogg's got one. You should have one, Randall. <laughs> well, now, you know what? I'm going to start thinking about that idea. I had never thought of that. I thought I was always roll my own, but hey, after all, you know, when you become an international celebrity, you need that like Snoop Dogg. You got to have your own joint roller, right? It's true. It's true. And those raw cones okay. will make it easy on me. And, you know, <laughs> one last thing I wanted to mention just to 
clear up any confusion out there is you mentioned your website, RandallCarlson.com, and that is the hub now. Even though uh, people have heard of Sacred Geometry International, we just need to tell them that you're no longer affiliated with that website. And I think that's important to say because you've done so many high-profile podcasts in the past that have mentioned that. And uh, just to clear up any confusion, it's now RandallCarlson.com. Yeah, yeah. It's a long story, disappointing story that I have to at some point tell it in its detail. But if you go to the website, the webmaster there has turned it into basically a forum for the promotion of his own agenda, which included a lot of what I think of as half-baked conspiracy theories. And it had a major reflection on me. You know, I'm seeing the buzz on the Internet, people talking about, oh, Randall Carlson. Yeah, he's got some good stuff, but he's a Q-tard, uh, or it's a lot of complicated stuff to go into. But the bottom line is, is I provided an enormous amount of content with the understanding that there would be just a fair and equitable split right down the middle between myself and the administrator of the website who built the website. October will mark three years since I've received any money from the sales of my work on that website. So. Uh, Anything that you purchase, bear in mind, I'm not seeing any of that money. The geometry class that's being sold there was never finished, and it's essentially the beta version. So I don't want anybody spending money for that because there's a much better upgrade that's in the pipeline. Yeah. Uh, it is just sad to see because you are such a wealth of knowledge and you seem like such a genuine guy that, you know, you should be compensated for the deep amount of study you've done over a long period of time, but I guess we don't need to say anything more about it, except those are unauthorized sales, and if anybody wants to support Randall, you go to RandallCarlson.com. You got it, Greg. Maybe someday this whole thing will work itself out, but as the months go by, I think that possibility gets less and less, so anyway. But the upside is, is yeah, I've got a whole new enterprise, new website, new podcast. I'm associated now with HowTube which is, this is something I want people need to also check out because this is going to be a venue for a much more open facility for content creators where they don't feel like they've got somebody standing over their shoulder ready to shut them down if they say the wrong thing. Oh, hallelujah. We could all use a little of that, yeah. you know. So howtube.com, if people want to learn more about the HowTo Project. Very cool. And the HowTo Project, might actually segue right over into the sacred school, if you want to build this, the academy enterprise as well. So, mm. And we will be posting updates on that as it evolves. So, yeah, a lot of exciting things happened, Greg, and I'm glad we had this conversation again to catch up on things. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. You got a lot of irons in the fire. Last time we talked, you had mentioned developing possibly some curriculum for homeschooled kids, because all that stuff about sacred geometry and scale invariance, that is the stuff I wish I was taught in school. It's the stuff I would love to raise my future kids with. So uh, I'm glad someone's on the case and uh, you're the guy to do it. So yes, awesome talking to you. Hopefully I'll get out to one of those group events, but until then, take care of yourself and thanks for coming on. You got it, Greg. Thanks for having me, man. All right, all right, all right. Dropping it like it's hot. The triumphant return of the great master builder catastrophist Randall Carlson. The Snoop Dogg of sacred geometry, whatever that means.
besides being the coolest guy in the room everywhere he goes. But it had been quite some time since we spoke with Randall. Definitely felt overdue, because I really like the guy. He's a wealth of knowledge, no doubt. I had kind of forgotten just how thorough his responses are, so it would probably take five or six shows just to get through the list of questions I made for him for this one. I hoped we would talk more about the moon, more about how the geomantic building code also relates to sound frequencies and how interesting it is that a lot of that stuff syncs up. I was going to ask him about Edadorfa because I'm sure he's familiar with the book. And it was really just one of a few oddball, hey, I've never heard anyone ask Randall about X, Y, or Z type of questions. And maybe they would have gone somewhere. Maybe they wouldn't. All stuff for next time, I suppose. But the building template process he lays out here is super interesting to me. It's just so detailed and well thought out. Truly orienting to the landscape and the qualities of it and the heavens, not in an arbitrary way. And finding this template all around the world at various time depths. Resurrecting this template for a modern age. Building an educational center using it. Lofty, and all really great, fascinating stuff, if you ask me. Sure, maybe we started a little too fundamental with that deep dive into dowsing. Maybe not, but I think our audience has a good handle on that particular practice. It has come up before, but that's the magic of Randall Carlson. You guide him out of the harbor, you push him out to sea, and you just let him chart his own course through. It was also important to me to give a plug to the Gramerica events and Randall's field trips. I'm thinking it's going to motivate me to get more involved in these things and maybe make my own field trips and meetups. I've had good and bad experiences with that. But I could be traveling the country on the company dime, meeting fans in bars, seeing new cities, bringing out guests to hang out with us. It's all fun stuff up in my head, but it's hard for me to section off the time. It's always kind of just on to the next show, scrambling to finish the month on time, taking a few days for myself and getting back to it for the next month. Maybe five shows doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a preparation day, reading a book, recording day, editing day, wrap up and upload day booking these shows, answering emails, throwing in a joint session, all while trying to at least give myself some of the weekends to not think about work, but it happens. It's not overwhelming, but it's just constant. It is whelming. I'm fully whelmed. To throw in a flight to anywhere to hang out with listeners takes time. Going out with Randall for six days, I mean, that's a lot. That means cramming a month of shows into three weeks. It can be done. I do it all the time when I have life obligations, but it's tough to just add more to the calendar. And I don't know why I'm bothering you with this. I guess just to say that I am a man of two minds, what I want to do and what I actually end up doing. But that is life, right? I just know that I do have this big network that is never really tapped. Travel is back open. There's just so much potential there. Maybe we start with a San Diego meetup, at least. I don't even know if there are enough locals to support that, but we could try. I don't know. I'll think about it. 
It's really the prospect of getting up on a stage and doing some kind of presentation or taking the mic and addressing everybody that is a little too nerve-wracking. But if it's a casual bar hangout, like some kind of weirdo convention or conspiracy high school reunion kind of format, that I think I'd want to do. It's the thing I always bitch about, but if I had one of my best friends co-hosting this show with me, like so many of my colleagues get to do, it would be so much easier because it's just me and a buddy going to Orlando or Denver or Portland together and we would just navigate it all with a wingman. <laughs> of course, a lot of you guys who have been here for a long time know that I tried to have co-hosts with THC and it just wasn't quite clicking. But when this going out in the field stuff is just a solo experience, it's harder for me to motivate myself to set something up and wade into the unknown. Oh well, another big factor in getting Randall back was letting people know about his bad experience with Sacred Geometry International. I don't even know too much about the details, but clearly a site was built up around Randall's work. He promoted it for years on all sorts of podcasts, and then he got burnt. It seems like his web person could not help but inject their own interests and political beliefs into the whole thing, and that's not cool. It'd be like if my web guys were also members of PETA and they just started injecting that into everything THC. It's irrelevant, and it's not representative of my voice. And if that stuff you're injecting is as controversial as Q stuff or Trump stuff, then it really has no place there. Make your own website for that. I don't know. Two sides to every story, whatever, whatever. I'm not trying to inject myself into the situation that I don't really know much about. But a site built on dozens of presentations and hours and hours of Randall's work, which is the result of his knowledge that he's gleaned because of his discipline and dedication for decades... They should be lucky to get any part of that, and really should be paying them at least half, if not more. So I heard about all that, and I just put myself in his shoes. He's the talent, not the technical side, and he's had access to the biggest podcast in the world. Has done a few episodes with Joe Rogan. You tell people this is your site, and then they screw you over? Ugh, that would frustrate me so much. It's not like you can just pop over to Joe Rogan after a year and say, hey, uh, give people my new site information now. It doesn't really work that way. It's just on to the next show. It all left a very sour taste in my mouth and it motivated me even more so to throw Randall on our schedule and help him get the word out about the changes and his latest work and all that good stuff. Seems like it's going really well and the Cosmographia podcast is a lot of fun. As always around here, if you only listen to the free first hour with no ads, we also got a whole second hour with today's guest and every guest, and we talked more about catastrophism in the second half today, which is a nice compliment because when you ask, well, how could all this common knowledge be lost? This is a big part of it. Motherfucking upheavals, man. We got into stuff like, did the ancients have help of some kind with this information? Who are the guardians over this knowledge? We talked about scale and variance, the evidence of catastrophe, and a nice little aside about lake monsters and the correlation with lake formation origin. 
Oddly, lakes with lake monster lore were all formed the same way. And see, that last one was a really interesting and fun tangent, but I would have liked to follow up with his thoughts on river spirits or lake spirits and animism and the idea that maybe these are physical representations of spirits of the land that phase in and out on occasion. But again, maybe next time if I don't wait so long. But regardless, another one in the bag. Starting July off right. Hope you had a good firework day. Hanging out with you and yours. It's what it's all about. And with that, I'm getting out of here. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. Sign up for Plus if you get value out of the free show. And you'll get twice as much. TheHigherSideChats.com I've done my part. Your move, catastrophic cycle concealers, building secret keepers, and restorers of the geomantic arts. Your fucking move. From space it was falling, its light started calling, it's making crop circles again. Just as I was looking up, it showed me all the hidden stuff, and now I'm all enlightened and zen. Waking up the masses is hard. Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now I'm not asleep, don't obey the elite Gotta be to the head Now I start to wonder, now we're not the sheep That they bred us to be Gotta be to the head Now we start to wonder, now we start to wonder Since the visitors set me straight I encourage you to go When you see the saucers glow One by one we'll all end up awake Enlightening the masses is hard Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now we're not asleep Don't obey the elite Gotta be to the head Now we start to wonder No, we're not starts to die cabals hate it when we 